This is Coda Radio, episode 352 for April 8th, 2019. And welcome to Coda Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show that takes a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. My name is Wes, and, well, this week I'm not joined by Mike. Unfortunately, he had a bit of a conflict. Luckily, I've got someone totally inappropriate here to join me. He just happened to be wandering around the studio. The one, the only, Mr. Chris Fisher. Hello, Wes. Yeah, I'm no Mike. I'm no Mike. I really got thrown in the lion's den on this one because I thought, hey, it'd be fun. I'll come back. We'll have a 3B. We're trying to come up with an appropriate term when the three of us do a show together. And then I ended up kind of like having to like just sort of be the (laughs) co-host. Yeah. So thank you for stepping in. You really, we could have just canceled the show, but this way, you know, we had a great live stream audience. You can always join us live. We do this this show live every single week. So there's no reason not to join us. I will say, I think in part because we have such a good live stream this week. It's one of the reasons why we're like, let's just do it. Let's just you and I do it. And also, it gives me a chance to embarrass you on the air and say, happy early birthday to you, Mr. Payne. thank you. I know it's a big one coming up, so uh, I just wanted to say happy birthday. I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, and I'm going to be spending part of that day podcasting. So it's kind of (laughs) great. Hey, wait a minute. That's right. We're going to be doing a show actually on your birthday. I could have saved it for that. (laughs) Dang it, Wes. (laughs) I think ahead next time. Well, um, yeah, so, so Mike did have something come up and, uh, he couldn't be here today. He was actually like, it was literally one of those last minute things. Um, and it involves, you know, family stuff. So we'd like totally understand. And, you know, we kind of embrace that on Coder Radio, right? The whole pragmatic aspect. Sometimes stuff comes up. Yeah, man. And I just want to say like you and Mike together have been killing it. So maybe it's kind of a good thing. Now I'm not going to mess up your flow that you guys got going. You know, you guys got a good thing going now. I come in here. I don't want to mess it up. So now this way, it's it's something different because Mike wasn't going to make it anyways. Right. This is a weird one-off standalone Coda Radio improvisation. Yeah, man. It's, you know, it's on the steady march to 400 too, which just really is mind blowing. And it's, it sounds old, but it's not quite as old as software that cities like San Francisco are running. And... I've had a little run-in with something like this back in my contracting days. This is an article. An article? What is what is an article, Wes? Uh, you know, I, I don't know, but I'm about to find out. I think it's an article about uh, agriculture. An article. Well, that's not what you've prepared for. No, us. it's not. <laughs> uh, it's, but it is from Bloomberg. From Bloomberg. And uh, they have an article that's, America's cities are running on software from the 80s. And this isn't going to surprise anybody. I know that going into this. But this, I just thought this was an interesting anecdote. San, San Francisco, the, uh, the town on the coast, you know, near the heart of Silicon Valley, is still pricing its real estate like it's the 1980s. It uses software that is DOS-based. It runs on 386s and 486s that they have to pay <laughs> to maintain. And uh, this is a common thing. We all know this. This is everywhere. This software never dies. And I just had a quick story that uh, I wanted to share with you. Have you ever worked anywhere where you've come across something that's just like, an ancient system. Oh yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. I, I worked for in a print shop for a while, and oh, yeah. there was there was some monstrosities there. Let me tell you, like like DOS. 
oh yeah, DOS, and then just weird ancient devices that were barely compatible, had been hacked together through like six layers of conversions and would only work with Windows 98 loaded yeah. up in the right way. Yeah. Yeah, it does feel like certain industries are more susceptible to this problem, print being one of them. Like any industry that has like really large machinery that needs to be controlled, and it's like that machinery is locked to, or the, the like the technology that is paired with that machinery is locked to like whatever the development cycle of that machinery was. So if they started it back 10 years ago, it takes a machine that's 10 years old to run it. And it's... It makes me think too that there's there's a difference in how we approach this. Like you might have a machine that you don't need to update for 30 years, but you can't do that with computers. I don't know where the, where the boundary between like yeah. simple machine, you know, static part to complicated operating system is, but there is a line there. And once you're above it, up to, you just have to update. There's like a, there's like a weird life cycle where you're running a mainstream operating system, so it's critical that you stay up to date and you stay patched for security reasons. But you go, you go 15, 20 years out of when that operating system was mainstream, and in a weird way, you're kind of almost secure again. Not in the sense, I mean, you're not secure in the sense that all of the exploits for that operating system are well documented, but you're, you are secure in the sense that nobody's writing exploits anymore and <laughs> going after that operating system. So I, I had this really interesting experience. I got called in to fix this. This uh, this is probably eight years ago now, but it was even old back then. I got called in to fix this attendance machine that the attendance office, you know, you know, you, for children. In, oh, in, okay. In so this school. is to track attendance in classrooms. Yeah, you know, the teacher calls attendance, right? And they fill out like a spreadsheet on their like, clipboard or whatever and they turn it in or whatever or they do it by the computer on a whatever and like my school was kind of an early pioneer because i'm an old man now but my school used a, a website a web page the teachers would go to a web page and check in all the students and then the ones that weren't there would get sent to the attendance office and then the attendance office would manually enter them into this dos machine it was a big tower PC. You remember when like tower machines were like three or four or five feet tall? Yeah, those were the days. Yeah, multiple floppy drives, big old, big old power supply. Bays for days. ISA slots, no PCI. I mean, we're talking really, really old. And uh, <clears throat> I go in there because it's not dialing anymore. And they need this thing to call the parents to let the parents know that their kids didn't make it to school that day. This is the system that would leave like a, you know, something on my parents' answering machine, which the answering machine is a whole other set of technology. But I go in there and I'm looking at it and the software, after I, I seriously have to take like a half hour to like refamiliarize myself with using DOS and DOS screens. And I discovered that the software is not properly communicating with the modem. Um. And it's one of these proprietary modems that's got like 15 phone jacks. Oh, wow. It's got like this big... Of course, because it's making all these connections, sending these automated messages. Right. It's got, well, I forget what they're called, but it's got this big plug that comes into it that then has all of the connectors hanging off of it. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Mm, I don't know if that's called either, but... Yeah. And... uh and so I open up the side of the case and it's got dust bunnies that, you know, would rival the greatest dust bunnies. I mean, just it, it was gray. The whole machine was gray inside and it was all of the ISA slots had been completely, that weren't used were completely filled with dust. It was just disgusting. But what had happened is this monster of a modem that had all of this components on it. And like, it was like a double stack sandwich card had over time, just the weight of it had pulled itself out of the ISA slot. Oh, yeah. I've seen that before. So I, I slid it back in, but it was a loose slot. 
So the car just would like slip right back out. It, was, like, it, it just didn't, it no longer had enough friction to keep yeah. itself in the slot. I did like a test bump, like bump the side of the case, boom, yeah, popped yeah. right out. I'm like, oh, Jesus, this is the stupidest thing. And so I'm, I'm, and I, and I, because it had taken me a while to familiarize myself with the system and figure it all out, I went and had gotten lunch at Burger King because, you know, I was being a fatty. And I'm sitting there eating my fries, which are pretty decent. And yeah, you need no excuses for Burger King. All right. That's totally acceptable. Thank you. And, um, also, by the way, a national DoorDash partner. Not that I, not that I'd know. Um, so I take my fry box, which I just finished my fries, and I look at it, and I look at the case, and I go, you know, this fry box is about the height from the bottom of the case to the, where the ISA card needs to be supported. And so I took my empty, dirty, greasy, salty fry box, and I put it inside this PC oh, case, no. and I propped the modem card up. That is gross. <laughs> But probably effective. Worked for years, as far as I know. Worked for years after that. Whoever has to find that the next time, like it slips or the, bo- the box is just degraded. The next enough. IT guy that comes in and opens this thing up, like <laughs> now he's going to be telling the story about the time he opened up a case and saw a fry box in there. <laughs> I mean, probably since it's like fast food, it just won't degrade ever. So it's a permanent. That's fix. what I figured. You know, it like you, you never have a problem with that kind of stuff. It lasts forever. Um, so it doesn't surprise me when I see that. You know, cities like San Francisco, I'm sure Seattle, same thing, government facilities, people buy this stuff and they they want it to be like property. They want to make a one-time large investment and then have it uh, pay off for years. It's just not really the way technology works, though, is it? Yeah, and it seems like we're still trying to figure out what that right cycle time is, right? Because you still replace things like your washer-dryer, but maybe now you have to do that because the digital screen broke, not because the actual washing mechanism broke. Yeah, so uh, what have you been playing around with recently? I know you've been, you've been up to all kinds of things over there on that ThinkPad of yours, and you said something to me earlier that I thought would be a great possibility for the audience to like set up a test environment to operate out of a while where they really wanted just extreme performance. Yeah, okay. Well, so you know TempFS, like yeah, slash yeah. temp on your system. You can sort of just like use RAM as a, as a file system and store stuff there. Yeah, it's like a small space that sort of you reboot and it's gone. Yeah. Like it clears out. So it's like that. But instead, use this technology that the Linux kernel has for emulating persistent memory. And persistent memory is, is exactly what it sounds like, right? It's, it's a special type of new memory that maybe, maybe this week we saw some things coming out of Intel's Optane stuff that possibly you could really buy. So, so far, Intel's going to really... make a hardware version of persistent RAM, essentially? Yeah, RAM that doesn't it, clear? Yeah, and it's really just, I mean, it's on that fuzzy boundary, right, between like RAM and and these like crazy NVMe drives and that sort of thing. Okay. And so it's just like this really fast access RAM, but is that can be persistent with some new technologies they've been developing. Mm. Now, to partly, and I mean, partly it's just interesting, and then they were incentivized to do this. They've added stuff to the Linux kernel so that you can emulate this. So application developers could start using the same APIs Intel. that would be used down the road. Well, they're, they're you know, I mean, it, there's a lot of people contributing. Interesting. And so this emulates this persistent RAM, even if you reboot the system? So, yeah, if you shut down the system, if your RAM gets cleared, if you don't really have persistent RAM, then, you know, it, it, there's no magic here. But... Basically, you add a little parameter to your kernel command line in Grub, or you can use kexec um, if you're if you're going that route. Is that the route you went? Well, I, it, it's just nice, yeah. Uh, you, and we'll you, talk more about that. We'll talk more about Wes that. Wes loves kexec. I really do. <laughs> uh, so you just, okay, you're in your Grub menu. You just add a little parameter that's like memmap equals, and then you tell it, like, how many gigabytes you want to allocate from your RAM, and then at what offset address. And there's some stuff, um, I can find some links for the show notes, where... 
There's some commands you can run and look at your D message output to determine memory regions that are safe to be just like allocated this way. You, do you know what makes them safe by chance? Uh, I think they're just not already reserved by oh, by the kernel for other. Nothing parts. else has claimed it. Yeah, exactly. You know, so after the kernels or as the kernel is setting up using different parts of memory, this stuff is just sitting there and hasn't been allocated to any application or cache or whatever. So it's allocating RAM to you much like you would allocate RAM to an application. Yeah, so so basically it shows up as a new block device. You just get like slash dev slash pmem zero. And it's just, it's whatever size you just want to eat of your RAM? Yeah, exactly. So what, how, how big did you make yours? Uh, right now I'm doing, I have a 12 gig chunk. And these ThinkPads have 32 gigs, so that's, I mean, you know, that's still plenty for my day-to-day usage yeah. in my real OS. So are you booting... Kubuntu, and then k-execing into an Ubuntu 19.04 environment living out of persistent RAM now? Yes, I am. I know that sounds <laughs> absurd, but it's easier. Like, once you get the k-exec command down, you do have to make a couple um, changes. I basically just copied the um, ISO from the beta of Disco Dingo, copied that after I formatted the partition. So stick XFS on there, copy over all the ISO stuff once you've actually, I mean, from the squash FS file system in the ISO, but whatever. Uh-huh. Um, got that set up. You got to do a couple modifications. The first thing you're going to need to do, unless you have a kernel that has the PMEM module loaded, is update your init RAMFS so that it includes it, because otherwise you're not going to be able to find your root file system. Um, so do that, and then maybe, depending on your system, maybe you need to mess with like, graphics drivers, which would probably be the same in how it's set up on your main, on your host system anyway, right? Unless you're maybe using an eGPU, that's interesting. Right, so that that's where it could get complicated. Yeah. So you might have to do a little futzing there, and then I usually just set up the you know um, FS tab. You can go look under you know slash proc slash mounts and and look at everything that's mounted. And go copy the UUID, or it'll probably just show up as the same PMEM device if you just want to be lazy about it. Add that to the FS tab, save that stuff, and then for the KXEC part, now you could do um, yeah, KXEC is probably just the easiest because. You can then, you have the new kernel right there, and you update your RAMFS, you get a new one of those, you stick those, KXEC loads them in memory, and then the key part that you gotta not forget, which I did more than once, you also need that same memmap kernel parameter for the new kernel, otherwise, it, you know, it won't allocate, and the PMEM device won't appear. Oh, that definitely seems like that's a critical part. But if you do all of that, you get all those steps right, and it's not that, I mean, it sounds a little complicated on air, but once you've done it once, it's it's pretty simple. You hit, you hit, um, you can do KXEC and just have it do it right there, it jumps to the address of the new kernel. But systemd actually has support for this, so you can do systemctlkexec. <laughs> and why that's nice is it'll do all this stuff. It waits till the very last part uh, of where, when it would reboot, right? right so it's right. unmounted file systems, all that nice stuff, stopped all your services cleanly, and then it jumps to the new kernel. Mm. And so the practical reason why you're doing this, other than it sounds completely badass and it's got to be fast as hell, is you are able to stand up uh, another work environment and try out a separate workflow, try out a whole different set of utilities, bang around with the audio subsystem, uh, build software, and you're not even touching your main install. So it's like, it's kind of the best of both worlds because it's it's way better than a virtual machine, way better than a virtual machine, like performance wise, uh, but you're still totally isolated and you're using that extra RAM that you're probably not using on your day-to-day use for the machine. So it, does anything break? Is there any real downside to doing this other than you got to eat some RAM? No, I mean, most things seem to work and it is just just really very snappy. So I do keep that in mind like when I'm doing a distro review, I might play around with it a lot in this mode, but I will try to boot it, you know, off a, off a real disk just I mean, to see what that's like. must be phenomenal. But it's, it is really nice. And so it's made this new, um, uh, this new 1904 release feel, feel even snappier, which has been great. So are you, 
What kernel is being used though? Like what is when you K exec, you're kernel swapping, right? Like that's a kernel you're yeah. switching over yeah, so to K, another kernel. So K exec is a is a Linux kernel technology technique and a set of user space tools to go go along with it. And it's actually how like crash dumps work in Linux too. There's a special like crash reporting kernel that you jump to if there's a if the kernel has like a fault and then it can like save out all the crash data. And so the the basic idea is you just load the take a kernel, load it in memory just like your bootloader would do. And then kexec tells the kernel, and then the kernel just jumps and starts running the new kernel right from that whatever offset it loaded it in memory. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And there is some ways I've seen various people on weird bootloader forums talking about um, you can like maybe do grub for DOS and get it to, to do other operating systems. Um, I know there's a lot of concerns about like kexec when they were first working out how um, UEFI would work with secure boot enforcing mode, like having to disable kexec or that sort of thing. So can I ask you, <clears throat> what, I still don't quite understand, like if you restart, what restores the state of the old environment? Like how does the 1904 install not get wiped out? As long as you don't power off the system, usually a reboot, and it might depend on your machine, give it a, give it a try, that's the only way to find out. Mm. Um, but on most of the machines I've tested it on, a reboot is not long enough and it doesn't really totally power down, so the RAM stays, like it doesn't. Ah. And for these purposes, you know, I might not, keep my master's thesis on there or something right but uh, <laughs> but for just like messing around in a test environment yeah. or i was just asking because for me it would be tempting as hell to make that my my production you do got to remember don't shut down your computer because yeah, that's boy i mean i'm pretty good about saving out and you know saving something that would like sink off into the cloud or whatever to another machine at least so i wouldn't probably lose data i'm not so worried about that it's more like uh I would think like application changes and stuff that maybe I, if I didn't have, if I installed several applications and then, and then were to <laughs> reboot or, or shut down and then come back and it'd be nice if I could have it like at, as it's shutting down, right out to like an image file. And then when it boots back up, restore that image file, you yeah. know, almost like a high, like almost like hibernate. That would be nice. Mm, I wonder what the best way to do that. I was also thinking I could maybe set up like an overlay FS or something. Mm. Um, you could still certainly mount your home partition just for data stuff too, of course. Yeah, I am tempted. Like, it wouldn't be bad to just make this sort of a more permanent. I mean, it's just got to be so phenomenally fast. Yeah, it's really, it feels very nice. A couple of times I've, I've run my operating system out of RAM, and it's such a treat. It's like, it, that was one of my favorite things of Nopix. I don't know if you remember the old, uh, like one of the original live CDs of oh, Linux. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You could, you could have it just load right into RAM. Woo-wee, that was fun. This stuff's kind of obscure, but it's nice. Like, I've done it other ways too, but like complicated, you know, like where you break in the initremfs or update it with your own custom script so that it sets up a tempfs and copies all the stuff from the real partition into ram and then continues booting that sort of stuff so it's nice when you do it this way because the the pmem stuff just makes it appear right as a block device and all the other you know regular it, it's then just a regular device to the rest of the scripts and system so zooming out and um you know accounting for just approachability um how approachable is this, like using kexec and all of this? Because th I think this is an interesting example of how this is an area where Linux kind of does something that Windows and Mac OS can't. And it gives you a lot of flexibility. And these are not necessarily hidden tools. Like, So how difficult was it to come across this? And do you think if somebody was interested in doing something like this, with the, could they figure this out in an afternoon? Yes, I think so. Um, the documentation is a bit scattered um but once you once <laughs> you no. <laughs> once you get the right kernel command line um and it's really not it's not that complicated but once, once you find that and get the right region of memory and sometimes you just have to try and your kernel just won't boot properly if you if you mess it up mm. or it'll ignore your request and you just won't have any pmem device show up 
But like your system doesn't crash or something. No, it won't crash like while it's running, or at least not in my experience. Yeah, okay. Um, seems to try to avoid those situations, which is <laughs> which is nice. So I think as long as you get that working from there, you should be fine. One optimization you can do that we didn't talk about um, is called DAX, uh, which is sounds like Jedzia DAX. I, I realize, but it's totally different and is actually a method to avoid unnecessary caching, right? So there's the whole page cache mechanism and all the optimizations that the kernel's doing for files that are on disk, but our files are already in memory. They're not going to get any faster by caching them in a different place in memory. Mm, So um, DAX is an optional thing you can do, and right Uh. now, I think the only major one file systems that support it are ext4 and XFS. Um, So if you you format those and then mount them with the DAX option, you can get direct access and not pay that penalty. So it's even faster. I didn't even think to ask you. Did you did you use ZFS? You didn't, right? No, you just used Extended Four. Uh, I used XFS. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. Very good. Which Very actually good. was the one time that it was not, like I ran into the problem where I I kind of allocated more disk from RAM than I needed. It, so far, twelve has been more than enough. Um, and so I wanted to shrink it, and then I was like, oh wait, yeah, I, f- I formatted this XFS. Something you and I have never talked about before, and I'm I'm curious to know where you where you land on this. So before I tell you my opinion, uh, are would you say you are? Um, what would you guess would be when are like really reliable self-driving cars are going to be mainstream? What what would be your guess for when they go mainstream on that? What's the I'm gonna need a little like what's the what are the acceptance criteria around mainstream? Um, you know, most, um, most, uh, most of all cars on the market when you buy them like are offering self-driving of some type. Jane, average citizen goes out to buy a car. It's a self-driving car. Yeah. You know, like a lot of times in the car industry, really high end features start at the very top and then they kind of trickle down like backup cameras, parking sensors, um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, launch systems, you know, all these things that, you know, like are get, coming down to, to uh, <laughs> launch systems. <laughs> My car has a launch I, system. I mean, they do. It it's does. just a funny term. It is a funny thing. And it's, you go into a, you go into launch mode and you gotta, you know, it's a certain incantation to get it to do it. Uh, and I think self-driving could, that's probably how it would trickle down at first, right? It was, it would come, it would just be a feature that sort of like how Tesla's all have it will soon, like, you know, you go get a, a Honda Accord and it'll have a self-driving system. Yeah. When do you think we get there? Hmm. When do we get there? All right. It's it's 2019 now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an interesting state that it's in, like right now, because I'm not sure we've decided how many edge cases are acceptable. You know, like right. I'm not sure we. It, it's probably still going to work out to be safer, but it seems like we're additionally scared because the machines are doing it. Happy to let e- us kill each other. We just don't want the machines to kill us. Well, uh, I also feel like. It's a it's an awkward um, teenage phase, so right now it's in its baby phase, and then you got the teenage phase where it it's awkward because some people will be self driving, but a lot of people won't, and so this system has to account for both kinds of drivers right. at the same yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. It's more complicated than if you actually had like All everyone, yeah, right. mandated, networked, talking to each other, optimized for that. Then cars could flow like data packets. Gosh, that would be nice, wouldn't it? You wouldn't have intersections anymore. I mean, it, was, it really changes the idea from that of a car to more of like a, you know, like a some sort of city public system. Not that it would right. have to be, but it's an integrated whole that can you work could together. Have a car that drops you off here at the studio, and then as you're leaving, you know, a car could be here in five minutes to pick you up, and there's nobody in the car. It's just your pod. Ah, that'd be perfect. <clears throat> it would be kind of great. I could I could edit the show notes while I'm driving while I'm headed back down to the city. The city that'd be amazing. So, what do you think, time wise? I'm gonna say. I'm going to go like t- t- 10 years. 
let's say like 2028, 20, 2029. 20, yeah, okay. I, I could see 10 years. I could see it. I definitely could see it. I am a little more skeptical. I'm feeling like it's more like 15 to 20 um, <clears throat> because I, I drive around, you know, up here that's, you know, what are we, 35, 40 miles north of Seattle? Yeah. And um, I, there's so many edge cases like there's just a lot of weird driving and weird roads that I, I can't imagine are in anybody's database really where they've, I, I just, I, I have very little faith in off of the highways and okay, off of so the freeways. Okay, so here's an example that just happened to me. I was being driven by a human. Uh, I, was, I was taking a lift ride in the city trying to meet some friends for dinner. And, you know, they're, they just tore down the viaduct. They're doing, well, I mean, it's still in progress. They're doing all sorts of construction is it, is all it, over the city. How, how has, the, has the traffic been really bad? Actually, no, I don't, not, not crazy. No, okay. Not, uh, for like the first couple of weeks, it was actually a lot better. Um, it's sort of dwindled back to more normal now, but huh. it's, it's not been too bad. Yeah. Cause it was like, it was like doom. Everybody said it was going to be doomsday. Now it is just about, I think just recently started like they're doing other things. So buses that previously took a <laughs> subterranean tunnel now have to be on the streets. Oh, so boy. there's always one more thing and more construction, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, thank so God. The, thank God you don't have to commute, dude. So there's this whole street that's just blocked off totally um, that had been previously a popular thoroughfare uh, down by the market, by the waterfront. Totally blocked off. But apparently, looking at the driver's Google Maps, Google did not know that. And this was a human, and he did a fine job. I don't mm. mean to uh, just, you know, talk ill of him. Right. But and it was a confusing situation. And you would think if anything's going to be current, it's going to be Google Maps. Yeah. So he goes, like he didn't even realize it was closed, despite there being a lot of signage about that. And <laughs> at the end, it was one of those big, long, like, Canadian tour buses that go, like, drive across the country, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was turning around because it didn't realize either. And it, So that many was, Canadians down here. That was a complicated thing for him to navigate. And we, there was, like, a parking lot was the only, a busy parking lot was the only area oh, to turn no. around. So it was, like, a perfect storm. And we got out safely and I got to my destination only a little bit late, but that'd be a hard case for a computer. Yeah. Well, that's a great example of how, how the hell would the computer solve that? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. You know, or when, remember when we had that bridge collapse not too long ago? Oh man. Yes. Yeah, that, that was, that was embarrassing. And you know, I looked at this, I was reading this news story, um, from uh, boing boing. Cory Doctor wrote it up about small stickers on the ground that were tricking the Tesla autopilot into steering into oncoming traffic. That, see, that's terrifying. Some reflective stickers on the ground. Now, Tesla's patched the flaw. So they, they did a proper disclosure to Tesla, and Tesla has... That's good. Yeah, so this is already taken care of. <clears throat> but I feel like when you start having um, computers doing the driving, you can start to, you can start to plan how to exploit them better. Because you know what they're going to do. You know what their limits are. Uh, like take, for example, a hostage situation. This is just a crazy example. But if you... This is the thing you think about. Right. Say if you had two cars and one was on the side of the vehicle and one pulled in front of the self-driving vehicle and they both slowed down and they forced the vehicle to come to a complete stop. A human driver might be able to get out of that situation. But the computer is going to... It's not going to have a lane to pull over and there's going to be a vehicle in front of it that's slowing it down. So the computer will probably just slow the car down. That's what my Volkswagen, my Volkswagen has uh, radar and, and lane assist, radar uh, cruise control and lane assist. And that's what it does. It just come, it'll, it'll come all the way to a complete stop. That makes sense. Yeah. I don't know how to handle this. We're just going to. Yeah. And um, you think about too, like stickers or other reflective surfaces have, sh have thrown off the cameras before. Like when you learn how they're capturing the data and how it processes it and how it makes its decisions, then you know how to exploit it. And you could start having people cause traffic incidents in a totally new way, where they're essentially exploiting the limitations of these systems. 
Yeah, that's the other part of this is I'm not sure that the software industry is mature enough really for, for this. Um, we've just seen all these like the problems with the Boeing 737 MAX. It's crazy. That's right? crazy and that has pre- previously been an industry with with great track records and statistically it, it still is despite these, of course. Um, but the software world at large comes from a much more freewheeling place and it takes a lot of time to build the sort of engineering style and knowledge and practices and auditing and all of those sorts of things that you need when you have people's lives on your hands. I, I might even argue that corporate culture isn't set up yeah. to sustain the jobs that you really, I mean, I would feel much better if if uh, the, the Tesla engineers were there for 35 years developing this software. What makes me nervous is when you have a lot of turnover, and this industry does have a lot of turnover. Um, there's a lot of opportunity, so you can't blame people for trying to get better deals, and uh, it's a very competitive marketplace. And it, when you have turnover, you have new people that come in that don't really have as much familiarity. They might not have been there during the early decisions. And it seems like that is a fundamental flaw in the way we are structured. There's not really incentives, and there's it's just... It's it, a fluid and very optimized for like short-term profits and incentives and shareholders sorts of things. It's just a different thing, or... It seems like we're getting worse at building longer-term institutions. That's the point I'm trying to get to, and that that is reflected in our software. So many times you will see, we're going to just hit the big reset and rebuild the platform, or we're going to rework it, or we're going to redo it. I mean, you've seen Apple do it. In fact, to Microsoft's credit, they're one of the folks that very rarely does it, even when they probably should. Windows is pretty much an unbroken line back to the 90s. Um, but a lot of software and platforms eventually hit this point where they want to rebuild and restart. And we're going to build a new platform. It'll start with less features, but it'll be better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you just can't afford to do that in, in this market. Like, you, that, you lose too much when that happens. But it, is, it just seems to be the way the software development industry operates now. And I, 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 I agree with you. I feel like we are not built to, to, to create that kind of software right now. And we've, we've got to work through all of that. The way people are going to exploit these things, the way it's going to have to operate while there's still regular drivers on the road that aren't automated, and we're going to have to build a real good solution around that human turnover factor. And then there's going to be all of the privacy considerations. Once these things are networked... And you're trapped inside them, you know, and they have a lot of information about, about what you're doing in there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's sort of strange. It, it'll be funny too to kind of learn the different personalities of the automated driving systems, you know, if you're still like a human driver. How does Tesla drive versus Waymo? I actually I feel like I can absolutely tell um when I when I am on a road with a Tesla that's in autopilot, I can tell by the way the car responds like when I switch lanes and I've noticed it now because I have the assisted cruise right, control okay. like i can so, so i can see like, you, when it's like backing tell? off to like match speed and stuff and you can see you can see when the cars you can tell when they're self-driving and it, it, right there i could tell like if i if i were to come to a stop that it would force that tesla to come to a stop behind me like they would i don't think it would just swerve over and zoom past me i think it would be safe and it would match my speed and if i if i was doing 65 and then i was doing 55 and then i was doing 45 it would just match me all the way down to zero I, see, it's probably going to be this another thing, right? There's going to be tiers, so government agencies or other uh, powerful people with money could probably have that all tuned in custom styles, right? That could drive, yeah, chase yeah. driving, right. race driving, or uh, general city driving, auto pursuit mode, yeah, right? <laughs> oh God, 
<laughs> it's so creepy. Uh, launch the drones. Auto pursuit. Will there be different levels of certification, right? Like lanes, self-driving only lanes that go much faster than the pleb regular traffic lanes. Right. Oh, jeez, man. Because oh. it is going to be, I mean, obviously the people with more money are going to get it first, right? Like you're talking about. It trickles down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we should take a moment and uh, give a shout out to the Linux Academy design team and uh, Mr. Cheese Bacon on our team for uh, cranking out some new coder graphics. So if you're in your podcast catcher, watch uh, listening. Uh, see if you got the new MP3 badge. We got new artwork out for the show. We it got new live stream so assets. It's so good. It's uh, really nice. It's amazing. And I mean, Cheese just came in here. He's he's hardly worked here. I don't know what his start date was, but it's not been few, very it's long. It's been a few weeks. Yeah. And he just hit the ground running and then had to touch basically every single asset for everything the network does. It's crazy how many there are. There's hundreds. It's really way it's, more than I thought. It's ridiculous. Every service has its own requirements like YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Fireside, um, all of them have their own dimensions and requirements and banner sizes and avatar sizes. So you have to create essentially assets for everything, for every Tons Twitch of tiny little customizations and tweaks. And then you load them up and find out that, oh, actually that part of their UI covers up the part we were trying to highlight. So we have to go back to square one. And it's it really represents the the redesign of the logos kicked off officially in October and it ramped up in December and then it really ramped up when Cheese joined our team a few weeks ago to get it across the finish line and really refine it. Um, and it, to me, I think is an interesting discussion topic for this show, where you work on something that isn't a direct user-facing feature, but you believe it is important for like brand identification or other, other driving factors. And you know your user base is going to have a strong reaction. Some of it positive, some of it negative. And you just know that's going to happen with something like this. And you put months of work into something like this. And you know, coming out of the gate, there's going to be pushback. And it's a, it's dealing with that is a particular kind of challenge because you can have a hundred positive comments. And if you get one or two negative comments, that'll be what the human mind focuses on. And it's, challenging because i think this is true for software developers and podcasters there's a bit of a feedback cycle that we kind of thrive off of you create something you release something you get the feedback it sort of inspires you to keep going create the next thing and it's this kind of virtuous cycle and you you know you're making something be it art be it software and you want to see what your audience how they respond to it and when they respond negatively even one or two, it's what we focus on. It can be... It's funny, right? You throw out the... I mean, as, as much as you appreciate them, people tell you that they like it or that it's great. It just doesn't have, carry the same emotional weight as yeah. this is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've tried to develop myself a thick skin over like the last 13 years because I've been taking crap on a daily basis for 13 years, 24-7. It's always videos somewhere. on YouTube. I mean, I think, you, I think you have to. Yeah. Oh, boy. But... Um, this is challenging for like small shop developers, large companies. I've seen them struggle with this and even large projects. Clement from the Linux Mint project recently was posting that his entire team has been essentially demotivated and feels like they're kind of done burning out a little bit. I mean, they're not going to stop, but that's how they're feeling right now. Based on harsh user reaction, not to software changes in Linux Mint, but because of logo and website changes. And the user community responded so strongly to that that it really affected the developers of Linux Mint. And now it's impacting the actual development of software. So the reaction to the art change has impacted the software development. And um, 
Clement on 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 the Linux Mint website writes that uh, it causes burnout. It causes it causes developers to leave the project. And he says this has been this Linux Mint nineteen dot one or nineteen dot two, whatever it is, development cycle has been the most challenging development cycle for him ever. And and that's just because of all these this other stuff going on that's not related to the actual development. It is funny, uh, this week's uh, Linux Action News, you guys did a great job hitting on the importance of perception, even when it doesn't feel like it's important, but but here too, right? When when there are people upset about it, that creates drama and emotional strain that developers have to fight through and are thinking about that instead of just sitting, being able to sit down, work, and think about the problem at hand. And you can say, well, don't read the comments, um, but I think a lot of people are doing this to make a connection with people out there. And so it's also really hard to not read the comments. <laughs> I, mean, like, I don't do a ton of it, but I, but then you also, you do want the feedback, right? It's interesting because not all of them are garbage, maybe many, but m- there's a lot of good, genuine feedback there too. Absolutely. Yeah. So my approach has been, and I know this is, uh, it's one of those that maybe that's uh, easy for Chris to say, um, kind of things, but my approach has been to, essentially try to develop a level of detachment because the core issue, the reason why I think negative feedback can affect you so strongly is your creations are often a bit of you. They're your baby. They represent you in a way like you put something Mm -hmm. into that. And so when someone's criticizing your creation, they're criticizing you in a way. Because those are your your choices, right? You shaped that thing and all tiny little decisions you made around that whole time. All of the thought you put into it and all of that. Yeah. And I think you have to develop a detachment and realize whatever, whoever your audience is, they have a different perception of the product than you do. And you have to detach and then view the feedback through that filter. And what I do is I, I, I also try to account for the fact I've run into this so many times. Sometimes people are just having a bad day and I've gotten these awful, awful emails and I've written them back and just been like, Hey man, like, wow, that was a little intense. Like, Let's talk about this. And then they'll write me back. Oh, I'm so sorry. I was just having a bad day. Interesting. So I've had to try to learn to discard a lot of the really angry stuff and a lot of the super over comment or complimentary stuff and try to find the middle, the balance. And if I see a trend, a lot of something that sort of registers like the same general note or, uh, or something to that effect, like a trend or something to that effect, I will, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll take that more seriously. And I, uh, I find that it has been a very, very effective approach, but it is not, it is absolutely not 100%. And even still, like one or two comments here and there every now and then, if it's just the right one, we'll get through and get in my head. We talked about this a while ago, but we have actually, even just recently, experienced that on this very podcast. Yeah, that's a great example. You'll hear us all the time say, you know, people hate it when we talk about hardware. Uh, nobody likes it. We get tons of feedback says nobody likes it when we talk about hardware. It's two people. Tens of thousands of listeners, a guy on Reddit and a guy on YouTube, might even be the same person for all we know, has been the most vocal critic of us talking about hardware. But because they are persistent, over time, we internalized it. And we have altered the show in pretty fundamental ways based on two people's feedback, even though tens of thousands of people were listening and didn't complain. And there is a subtle influence that, you know, it's just this sort of weird immediate thing. You, you think about shaping the show that you're, that you're working on and there's this little back pressure somewhere in the back of your mind. And then whose creation is it at that point? If you're not making 
thing that's truly yours? Who, whose creation is it? Yeah, you have to find that right balance of yeah. taking feedback, building, learning. And, and making it your decision if you alter it. Right. But you can't, I mean, I think we've seen too much in maybe bigger mainstream media type things that you can create something that lacks the heart when, when you, it's just based on feedback or, you know, just oh, yeah. pandering to fans. Pandering, yeah. When you create something that panders to, to ratings, it can really ring hollow. Um, and so even, even myself taking shit for 13 years on a daily basis, uh, and developing a, a pretty good system to filter this mentally, it still gets in sometimes. And it even sometimes takes us a while to realize it's happened. And so part of dealing with negative feedback is accepting that sometimes it's still going to get to you and then creating a structure for yourself to get out of that and to re-recognize what's happened and then get above it again. And it's never perfect. And so part of handling good negative, good and negative feedback is, because both can influence you, I suppose, but negative seems to be the stronger influence, is, is allowing this yourself permission to sometimes still get something through the cracks and then get yourself out of it. Like you got to catch, you got to catch yourself. Then I think that really kind of completes how you handle that kind of feedback. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm not to... trying to tell Clement how to do his job, but he's got to get, that's where he's got to get, right? That's where his whole team's got to get. And yeah. our team too, like it happens to our team as well. And it's especially hard probably in the team environment because you've got, you know, multiple people with different feelings about what's what's going on and you have to all try to work together and there'll probably be different ideas and approaches about how to handle that. And different people that have been getting criticism and feedback uh, for shorter or longer periods of time. Like some people, yeah, right. you know, it takes years. I feel like unless you have somebody coaching you how to deal with this kind of stuff, it can take out, it can take years. I've, I mean, I've been, I've been working with guys and, and gals on these shows that have been at it for four or five years even, and still haven't figured out how to properly filter negative feedback. And, I think it's because it, it it's it really touches on a lot of instinctual behaviors and things we're not fully aware of, like why our creations are so important to us. Like, <laughs> right. You know, it's like it's not obvious. There are it, complicated human psyche things involved. Right. Here. You're right. And it's you know, it's taken me sitting here taking an ass beating for thirteen years to figure it out. And so now I want to impart that a little bit because it can really save your psyche. You know, if you're looking at bad reviews somewhere or somebody sends you a nasty email or a pull request that seems super entitled, um, you just got to consider, you got to detach yourself and look at it from their perspective. Yeah. Right. And it can help, help if you can do that, but it, you just, it's not always easy. It's a practice though. Yeah. It's like exercise. And to be, just to be aware, I think helps to start, right? Like understand what you're feeling, why as in relates and you know, how, how that happens just by acknowledging it, you can often then at least start to compensate for that feeling in your interactions. Yeah. And, and, and then allow yourself to screw it up because it's going to happen. And don't beat yourself up on it doesn't mean abandon the philosophy. It just means get back to it. I think that's actually one of the, the bigger parts I like about whether you're doing programming or just working and keeping logs or journals or other things. I find that if I can review something, it gives me a little bit of closure. You know, I can be like, okay, that, that upsets me. Maybe I'm a little sensitive because I didn't feel that was the strongest part of the show either or, or, or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, why is that one upsetting me? Why is that the comment that's getting to me? Yeah, exactly. And mm -hmm. then think about it. Give it time. Acknowledge <clears throat> it. But with the with with me knowing that once I've done that, I'm I'm just going to move on. I've got other things to do that day, and call it done. <laughs> yeah, that is what sometimes that's what it is. Sometimes, yeah, I, I agree. So, um, chat room says we should talk more about hardware. Well, one of the reasons I was on the show today is because I've been waiting to hear how Mike's experiments with his I know, eGPU. Right? Went. He was tweeting about it, yeah. getting this all hyped. He got himself. Uh, it was a. It looked like it was a husband wife project too. Like the two of them were assembling this eGPU, this Thunderbolt eGPU. 
And I'm curious to know like what the sound of it is and all that. I want to know all the details. Mike, like I live vicariously through Mike's hardware purchases. I know he just gets to do it so much more than we do. <laughs> he also, I think he might've been pulling my leg. I can't tell with the HomePod stuff, but he might've got himself a HomePod because Apple dropped the price. Oh, were you tempted? I I'm, I'm, I'm still tempted. I don't How have the right way to, to it. I, I couldn't now. I don't think, although aren't, are there anything that can do open source um, airplay? airplay stuff? Probably. If that anybody, would be a fun experiment. If anybody knows, tweet tweet Wes and I, at Wes Payne, at Chris LAS. I would love to be able to stream like from Pulse Audio to AirPlay, and I think there was a bridge once before. Then the other question would be, is would the HomePod accept it, or does it only accept AirPlay too? I doubt it, but that's a particular... Yeah. A, you know, I mean, they do sound really nice. Yeah, yeah that's they the really, thing. That's the funny thing about it. I mean, I, I really kind of just, I talk about it on the show just to kind of bust balls a little bit, but they really do sound pretty good. I actually have two of them up at the front of my RV, and that's what we just, that's our RV's sound system now. We don't even use the built-in radio anymore. That's, that's the funny part, too, is like I wish that I could play, because I, I just don't need, I don't want to have to buy into the whole ecosystem, but I'm happy to buy a nice product that they make. I have yeah. no objection to that. Yeah, it would be really nice if there was something like AirPlay that was an open spec that's um, not a, not tied to Google. It's not Bluetooth, but is over your LAN and um, is low latency. Yeah. See, the thing like, that, there is like DLNA, but it just kind of sucks. Yeah, yeah. The thing that's really nice about AirPlay is uh, it buffers a little bit, so it prevents from network issues. But your play pause controls and your volume controls are instant. And right, so there's a separate channel that they're sending that stuff yeah. through. And, oh man. Yeah, and. The OS compensates for the buffer in video and video in like video playback and games. So even though there is a buffer delay, what you see on screen syncs up with what the AirPlay devices are playing. So that well, that's what that's what the open spec needs to be able to do. Like whatever, that's like the minimum. Now we need to have that. And then if it could have other stuff like Netflix just dropped AirPlay because it I'm uh, right because they're uh, expanding. Yeah, they said it, they say AirPlay has technical limitations, and then they clarify <laughs> the technical limitations are it doesn't send the right tracking ID information from the device to the TV, so Netflix can't track and guarantee they're sending. They claim they can't track and guarantee they're sending the right type of stream. Is that right? Yay, platform wars. <laughs> I know that's the the worst part about it. It feels like. The, the era of open standards yeah. is coming to an end. Not everywhere. Like some, actually, some of the cloud stuff, there's been enough. It's low level or complicated that it can be shared. But at the consumer level, it's all services. It, it because because services are the new path to revenue. You're you're gonna see the app store of the web at like con- kind of competition. Like there was a really super brief period of time when the iPhone first launched that the services were all provided by Google. The shopping was all provided by Amazon, and the hardware and OS were provided by Apple. Yeah, that's right. And then they all became competitors. And that all, you know, Google's still on there, but, you know, it's all, like, it's, it's, they all are competing now. Like, you know, Echo does things that HomePod can't do, and Google Assistant has things, like, they all have exclusive agreements. Like, there's this whole cross-section of features that, yeah, Matrix, you have to look at to even figure out which one's the right one. It doesn't seem like a lot of that is really serving the consumer. No, and now it's going to be even more of that. Now that they're all getting into media and video. Yeah, the Disney stuff, Apple, it's crazy. And Amazon's going so all in on, on Amazon Prime Video. And, I mean, they they got to be spending a fortune on Grand Tour alone. It's funny. I, I have Amazon Prime Video, but I don't watch it that much just because, like, the particular TV I have, their app just is awful. Oh, and, it's the worst, and they yeah. don't support Chromecast, which is my other primary yeah. streaming platform. Yeah, no, these, they have the worst apps. All these apps. Really, Netflix is the only one that has a good app, but the problem with Netflix is it auto-plays video, and I can't. 
It gives me anxiety. Yeah, right. And no, I, like, you can't I control your, especially as a broadcaster, your computer's just going to make noise randomly. No, and sometimes they're like, this. sometimes they're like full-fledged trailers, like if Netflix owns the property, but if it's like, um, you know, another licensed film, they'll just have like some really shitty, um, like royalty-free music playing. Uh, it's uh, sort of- They also manage to pick some of the worst clips sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like that's another aspect of this that we're really going to struggle with is different platforms will have different apps that have different services. It's really going to be not what we wanted at all. Thankfully, I mean, we're not going to play that game. It's easy to find all of our stuff, right? Just coder.show or jupiterbroadcasting.com, which I would like to say, thanks to Cheese, is looking so show shiny. Sure, sure is. New dark theme, new logos are up there. Got a new easy link to get in the IRC room, which I can't believe we didn't have up there before. I know. It's great. A new live page looks really good, too. It's all, it's all really looking sharp. Yeah, you can go there, and if you want to watch us live, you know, that's the easiest way. Try to do it on Mondays. Um, Wes, you gotta you gotta you gotta take some credit though. You did a lot of the work too. You did a lot of the website work too. I mean, there was uh, there was a lot of WordPress to be fought, so yeah. we needed many valiant soldiers. So thank you. I just wanted to get that on air. Like thank you too. That's the nice thing. It's a team effort over here. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So uh jblive.tv for the live stream. The calendar, of course, that's still there. Um and uh it's uh, always up. It's, always it's on its own page, though. So yeah. just go to the go to the calendar. Yeah, page. we tidied up the front page, made it load a little faster by taking some of like those embedded widgets off and stuff. And uh, it means you got to go to the calendar page, but the main page loads faster. So yeah, and you know what? We will we we do this every week, like you said, Mondays noonish Pacific time, if that's your time zone. Otherwise, that calendar can help you. And you know, I have a feeling there's going to be Mike back. So I'm going to grill him on all those things we wanted to hear about. Thank you for stepping in today though, Chris. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, no, no problem. And I hope everything's great with Mike. I hope it all, I hope it's all taken care of. Um, He'll and, probably have a story to tell. And you know what? I'll just listen. I'll get to listen to the eGPU stuff. So he'll, I'll still be able to live vicariously through Mike. So it still works out for me too. Thanks right. for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if you want more of Chris, he and Joe just celebrated episode 100 of Linux Action News, and uh, it's a great one. So go check that out, linuxactionnews.com. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Go check out Wes on TechSnap, techsnap.systems, with him and Jim Salter from Ars Technica doing a great show. That's right. You can also find us both on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne, and he's at Chris LAS. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Next week.